You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we give thanks that we can gather for another Sunday on our journey, and we give thanks to hearing of the Word. Uh, We pray for its receptivity in our hearts as you prepare us for the week ahead, and we ask that now you give us the, uh, the insight we need to learn uh, from the history of your church and how it's working out in space and time and even uh, to this very moment as uh, we continue to try to steward it in our own little corner of the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, and uh, it's good to see you. And I'm really excited to try to teach the Middle Ages in about 30 minutes. It's about a thousand years of history, so go. And, you know, how, how do we do it? So the first thing I want to do is try to, uh, and I also want to leave time for questions because if there's ever a time period to question, it's the Middle Ages. It is, and, and that was a bad joke, I guess. But the point, <laughs> I guess any of it raises questions. But um, I, I want to begin where I, where I began last week, which is, what does it mean to study history? History as opposed to sacred history, or secular history as opposed to sacred history. And where I started this last week, and I'll probably start every session this way, is that with sacred history, there's plenty plenty of seats. Um, Come on in. With sacred history, we have the guarantor of the third person of the Trinity. We have the guarantor of God's spirit, God. <laughs> God interpreting with us and, and as we try to make sense of sacred history, i.e. redemptive history, or the Bible, right? So when we read the scriptures, we have that. We don't have that promise when it comes to what I'm about to do <laughs> or try to do which means I, there could be errors here, not many, but uh, there, there could be a couple of errors. Uh, and, uh, and there's also a lot of other ways you could get at it, right, than the way I'm necessarily trying to get at it. Uh, so I, I qualify that up front. Uh, and then also, uh, I, I want to get at it in a way that's understandable. Because with a thousand years of anything, there are a lot of rabbits you could chase. And there, there are a lot of emphasis, and there's a lifetime of study. Uh, for anyone taking on uh, 10 years of certain parts of history, much less a thousand years. So what we're really trying to get at is, what does it matter for us? What are the essential issues? What are some essential characteristics that we want to walk away from? And that's what we did with the early church last week. And we kind of boiled that down to several questions that the early church was wrestling with over several hundred years. They were wrestling with the authority and reliability of Scripture. They were wrestling with the person and work of Christ. I I probably would add the Trinity in there as well, and what that means. And they were wrestling with, why do we need salvation and grace? What does it mean? So all of this should sound pretty familiar if you go to church. It's not that different. Same stuff we wrestle with today and try to make sense of in our own framework 
okay? And uh, a lot of details we could go into there, uh, which I, I won't given our time, but what we saw is the way in which they, this was a debate with Judaism. This was a debate with the Greeks. This was a debate with what it meant to be Roman. And all of these factors, all of these factors uh, influenced how the church responded. But at the end, I think those three big points are what comes out in the wash. For, for every, if I said, what does every Christian need to know? You need to think about that. Um, you, those are the questions the early church left us with and answers the early church left us with. Um, one of the places we started also, that I'd like to start again today, is with this map. It's a, um, it's a map of the Mediterranean basin about the time of uh, right around about 100 years into the Constantinian rule where the, the, the world, the Western world was split into half between a Greek-speaking culture and a Latin-speaking culture. And I'm starting there before we go to the Middle Ages, right? <laughs> because uh, I want us to get some perspective. I'm going to show you another map in just a moment to show you why I want to start here with this map. All right, so when did the Middle Ages begin? Well, they began on February 12th. I don't, I, 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 this is always the hardest part of teaching history, especially to, to younger people. They want this precise. These are patterns we're looking for. These are, you know, we, there, there is an arbitrariness to how we date things. What is the age we live in now, the post-Cold War world? What is that going to mean 100 years from now? Roughly, we're talking the 1,000-year window between 500 and 1,500. And you get in a room of historians and you'll think you're arguing over the meaning of life. You know, no, no, it's 1,500 works for what we're trying to do right here. It's about a thousand year window with different kind of emphases toward the end there where you could say, well, you know, what about this and, and what about that? Now, if that's roughly where we're starting, this map is still in play. But what I want you to notice about this map around the year 500, about to the year 800 or so, the axis, it's an east-west, it's an east-west axis, Rome to Constantinople. It's Rome to Constantinople, and it's the Latin and Greek world that is ne negotiating this idea of what the church is o o over and over. When we start talking about the Middle Ages, I think the first place to start is a shift in that axis to a north-south axis, okay, a north-south axis, and this begins around the time of Charlemagne, uh, and really a little bit before, because, but again, for, for time purposes, I'm going to skip some things, but what I would say we need to remember as the church is that this axis, this east-west axis shifts as uh, the, the barbarian states in the north, uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire, the sort of intermingling of native groups with Roman customs begins to form the baby footprint of Europe. And the most powerful of those kingdoms up in the north is the Franks. Where do we get our word France from, right? And it is this empire that negotiates the first connection with Rome as, um, as a protector, as a spiritual protectorate, and in return, that kingdom offers Rome a military protectorate, all right? 
So I would say that's one thing we need to keep in mind is that access shift from east-west to north-south. Essentially, Rome found itself, and the papacy and such, found itself in a number of quandaries, and they kept kind of writing Constantinople saying, can you come get the Lombards out of, out of our backyard? And uh, Constantinople say, look, you really aren't that important anymore. Uh, we're more important. Call somebody else. So they email uh, Charlemagne. He's like, I'll do it. But you're going to make me Holy Roman Emperor in exchange. And the Pope said, deal. And that's kind of the cartoonish way to understand what just happened uh, around the year 800 on Christmas Day, the beginning of this North-South alliance of modern Europe. Rome itself, we'll say more about Rome in just a moment in the papacy, but Rome itself is not considered, let's go back to this map, is not considered the primary sea of church authority in that blue part of the map. That is why we don't have, uh, the, the Eastern Church exists, the Eastern Orthodox Churches exist. They do not believe that Rome is the primacy, the primary bishop seat of the West, or of the world, for that matter. They don't have one. Okay, Rome gradually grows into that position, uh, beginning, well, <laughs> depends on who you talk to, but <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll kind of whisper the Protestant line. Somewhere <laughs> around Gregory the Great uh, and, his, uh, and, and his reforms in the 400s into the 500s, we begin to see Rome taking more and more of a political role in central Italy. And from there, thus it begins, right, into the, the Middle Ages in the West. So we're talking about the Western Church, and we're talking about a new sort of alliance between the North and South. This new alliance between the North and South is what leads to my first point, I would say, we got to walk away from as, as modern Christians. And that is not the, the creation of the papacy, which again... <laughs> Some would say that's Peter, right? It's not the creation of the papacy. Uh, it's how does the papacy become so strong? And this is the papal revolution. This is the first great reform movement of the church around the year 1050, about a 50 to 70 year window. It's also called the investiture contest or the problem of investiture. Now don't glaze over just yet because the punchline in all of this is Rome is about to become really powerful and really important. And before you can understand what we do next week with the Reformation, you have to understand how Rome because becomes such a central power in the West because they weren't. Yes, sir. In terms of BC and AC, yeah. these years. <coughs> this is all Anno Domini. This is all AD all these years. Yes, sir. Good. That, that's, that is important. If we were on the other side, we'd be back with King David if we jumped in. <laughs> Good. Good. All right. Papal revolution. So to understand the Reformation, to understand Luther, <coughs> to understand what our own church here at the Advent kind of sees as its roots, you got to go back a little further. How did the Pope become so strong? Well, it goes back to this north-south problem because over time the, the, the bishops and the kings and the provincial rulers of what we would call France and a lot of Germany 
and the eastern uh, countries of Europe began to take it upon themselves to say, you know, when we need to fill a bishop, a seat of a bishop, when they die or run off or whatever they do, <laughs> it really is our prerogative to do this. We rule here, we're German, we're not Italian, the Pope's way down there, right? My cousin, whatever, Gunther, is not that sharp. He would make a great bishop, and he gets lots of land in the process. Land is money, you see. So there's this commodity idea. It's real estate, 101. If I can control the bishop, I can control the land. If I can control the bishop, I can control the people, because they fear God more than they fear me, you see. Well, this is, it sounds like, okay, uh, how does it, what is, what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal here is it leads to a great deal of corruption in these appointments. Simony is what we call it, right? I'm going to, I appoint friends, I appoint family. I think there were even daughters appointed to Bishop Briggs at, the, you know, at this time because they didn't know what to do with the daughters and children. You know, uh, because oftentimes, and then, so the, these rulers found a way, and I wouldn't say it was a conspiracy. We don't want to go that far. It was just a collective development over time. We're here, you're there. Who's in charge of this territory? This is where the papal revolution begins. This happened over a couple hundred years. A couple hundred years, 800s, 900s, and... This, this develops, so a couple hundred years, a lot of stuff can happen. So you've got some pretty entrenched problems now in Europe. What is the church, and where is its authority, right? Well, the popes at this time were pretty much worthless in terms of being able to address it. They had their own problems in the papal states, and frankly, their own level of corruption and difficulties that they were dealing with. Uh, and they really had no authority in this, this territory up there without getting into a pretty big conflict with the German emperors and stuff, all right? Enter the monasteries. Enter the monasteries. Now, we haven't said a lot about the monasteries. Again, time, but the monasteries have been around a long time. And they've come to a kind of maturity in the Middle Ages. What makes them unique in the position to address this problem of real estate and bishoprics and stuff in Northern Europe? They're independent. They, a monastery, an abbot, you're not appointed by a ruler or a bishop. It's in-house. It's passed on. It's a different kind of ordination. They don't run the church they run the monastery. Their job is to pray and teach and work. Okay? This creates another pathway of authority into the church because the more educated the monasteries get and the more important they become, the more of a resource they are. And it's only a matter of time before it happens that a monk is going to be pulled into the office of the pope. So now we have someone, and this, we can all relate to this, someone disrupts the system. We have a disruptor, right, in the system, in the bureaucracy. And a series of these disruptors come around the year 1050 or so. 
And the, the primary monastery that's feeding this, these guys is called Cluny. They were known as Cluniacs. I know. So I don't know why I think that's funny, but it is. <laughs> I am a Cluniac. Um, it's in southern central France, south central France. Some of you may have been there. I, I, it's a beautiful monastery. still there. But the monastery of Cluny, they actually realize if we're going to change this system, we've got to start from within and we got to get inside of it. They do. And indeed, over a series of uh, 50 plus years, they begin to work on the corruption. How? And this is the revolution. They begin to expand what it means to be a pope <laughs> and what the rights of a pope are. And the first thing they do is they surround themselves with a cabinet called the Cardinals. They create the College of Cardinals as a buffer or a barrier or an advisory council to help manage this expanding sort of church growth movement into Northern Europe. All right. The next thing they do is they start taking the kings, uh, really the Holy Roman Emperor on straight on and saying, you can't do this. You don't have the spiritual authority to do this. This document right here is the most famous of this whole issue that happened between uh, Pope Gregory VII and King Henry IV of, of Germany, not of England. Famous story, too many details probably to go into at the moment, but let's just say Henry and Gregory, Gregory came out of the monastic movement. He came out of the monasteries. He was avidly committed to reforming and expanding the authority of the church over the authority of the princes and, and, and the, the regencies in Northern Europe. And, well, let's see if we can do it fast. What does Henry do? He says, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to ignore all of these uh, suggestions from Rome and do what I want to do. And, and, and if, if I find anybody, to, I'm going, just going to invade. I'll use the power I have, the army, to, to take care of this. The, <laughs> uh, the Pope says, oh, okay, well, you have some, some mighty power there. I have another power. I'm going to condemn you to hell for all eternity, <laughs> and no one's going to follow you ever again. And he was right. All of a sudden now, the southern German bishops go, I mean, southern German uh, princes go, you know, <laughs> the king's condemned to hell. Um, let's make our move. And so, long story, cartoonish story short, they make their move, and Germany ends up in basically a civil war over this. Uh, Henry has to, it's the famous, uh, he has to strip in the snow of Canossa before the papacy and beg penance, uh, give it to him. Lasts for a while until that pope dies, and uh, he invades anyway. And, then, and so it, it goes on and on, but out of this comes this, the dictates of the Pope, the Dictatus Pape of 1075. And if you ever get a chance to read it, it's written, we can get it better in a little clearer prose than this. Uh, this is actually from the Vatican um, collection. It's a series of proclamations that says, I'm in charge of the church. I have the power. This power has extended from the time of St. Peter you do not have any power when it comes to spiritual matters or church property. And in all things regarding morality, I'm in charge. This is the defining document of the papal revolution. Every Christian should know this because this is the moment in history when the papacy finally has 
the leverage it needs over that northern access. Because it creates a new bureaucratic structure with Rome at the top and a series of offices down, that can be then moved through Europe but monitored by Rome. Okay? Without this, Rome and the papacy never achieve the kind of influence that they ultimately do that leads to the Reformation. Two consequences of this, I have one up here. One, the university systems begins to form around the big cities of Europe. Why? Because the Pope can send representatives from various monasteries and monitor them and control the doctrine that's being taught. So the university system begins to flourish with money from the church, right? And if you were a cathedral church like we are, a, uh, the, the, the seat, you likely would have had a university attached to you, okay? Two, the Crusades would never have happened without this. It took this kind of centralizing authority for Pope Urban II to be able to go into France and say, the, the Saracens have Jerusalem, the Muslims have Jerusalem, we must rally the Christian kings, countries of Europe now to go. And they do what? They go. That never would have happened without this change and this bureaucratic authority. So, uh, and that's a picture of the siege of Jerusalem, a painting to, to emphasize the point. Uh, so uh, the Crusades emerge out of this. This is my first emphasis. The, 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 north, the, the move toward Europe and the, and the church and then the papal revolution that follows. Everything I say from here depends upon that, including the theological developments, all right? Um, there are a lot of names out of the Middle Ages, um, and, and we're not going to do that. Um, but there are two names, I would say, you need to know, and I'll try to say more why in a minute. And then there's a theological movement or method I want you to, to think, to understand, that comes out of this time period. The first figure is Anselm of Canterbury. And yes, it's, it's the Canterbury of the painting here. It's the Canterbury of, Can of England, yes. He is um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is also a very learned man, all right? He's incredibly bright and, and gifted in his writing and teaching. And Anselm does several things that are important. And, and to understand their importance, we have to take one more step. The Middle Ages are starting to argue. <laughs> They're starting to argue a lot with two groups in particular, Muslims and Jews. The Christians of the Middle Ages and the universities are starting to argue with Muslims and Jews a lot. And I'll say more why in a minute, but the, what's really happening is they're trying to figure out the problem of Aristotle. Again, don't glaze over. He's dead. We're not going to worry about him too much. But his writings are really important. Anselm is part of this argument. Anselm creates a number of important works, but I want to emphasize one that I think every Christian should know from the Middle Ages, and here's why. It's called the Cur Dus Homo, or Why God Became a Man. 
So the title alone ought to tell you something. <laughs> Titles always do. Why did God become a man? He writes this in response to two challenges to the Christian faith, or arguments that are, go that are circulating around the, the Europe. One are the Jews and the Jewish criticisms of, of, of Christ, essentially, of, of, of Jewish scholars. Anselm, they're saying, they're making the case that this, this incarnation thing is just gross. Why would God become flesh? I mean, this is just wrong. There's nothing, uh, uh, there's no dignity in this. And so he, Anselm says, wait a minute. There's perfect dignity of this if you understand it. The second people he was arguing against were the medieval theologians who were saying, you know why God became a man? I, I think I heard a little bit of this in the, in the sermon today, in term, not this point, but maybe the, uh, the orbit of this argument, is that the devil controls this world. It, the world had to be rescued from the devil. So God sent a knight. He sent his benighted, no, not benighted, but he sent his, uh, his knight, Jesus, to, to rescue the world from the devil. So one good world had to replace this bad king down here, Satan, right? And this is why it's important, because Anselm says no. No, that, that's not it. He said, no, God became a man as satisfaction or justice for sin. Not to displace the king of this world as the devil, so to speak. Not the devil who is king of this world, but as a satisfaction for the justice that God demands for our sin. Why is this important? It's important because the doctrine of justification, as it's going to be revisited by Luther and Calvin next week, starts here with the atonement. It's the first incarnational sort of outworking of the idea of the atonement as an exchange of, of God's, God's love, God's sacrifice in place of ourselves for justice and our guilt. Anselm is our first great thinker who does that. Does that make sense? Okay. Second guy, who I know you're going to remember all of this tonight when you go to bed, is I want you to remember, but just remember the ideas, is Peter Lombard. Peter Lombard is a very important figure. Why? He gives us the first systematic theology of the church. He compiles all the teachings of the church fathers, all these different sort of redactions and notes that have been made in, uh, around Scripture, he collects them into a coherent whole called the sentences. Every university in Europe that taught in the church used this book. It was the book. All the great thinkers wrote commentaries on this book. It was incredibly important, and it also, as we'll see in a moment, led to some controversy. But why? What do we want to walk away with? He's the first great thinker who said, finally said what the sacraments of the church are. Believe it or not, at one point we had up to 27 sacraments by one account, one theologian in the Middle Ages. Somebody had 12. Lombard says, nope, the, the, the list is seven, and here's why. This is very important. Because once these sacraments are defined, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, penance, anointing of the sick, and then the two separate ones, the individual ones, marriage and holy orders, once you have these defined, this is 
how grace is conferred according to the church. This is the heart of the Reformation controversy that's about to break out in 500 years. Lombard doesn't create the controversy. He just writes a book that defines the controversy in some ways very early on. So uh, Anselm's uh, doctrine of atonement and justification and Lombard's uh, ordering of theology and the sacraments are incredibly important to this world. And finally, a movement in and of itself or a way of thinking and that came out of this age. And I mentioned Aristotle a moment ago. The Middle Ages was dominated by Augustine and his thinking and his, his very Pauline under, uh, understanding of sin and redemption. It also had led to both healthy and unhealthy ideas about the nature of creation. Is creation good or is it bad? The Muslims were the first to deal with this, and the Jews, primarily in Spain. Spain's next door to Europe, it did, uh, France, it did not take long before this came into the Christian church. The scholastics saw reason and faith as capable of cooperating. In other words, our minds and our wills, our faith, they can work together through reason to uncover truth. Put simply, we can use logic, which is why we say Aristotle. Paul doesn't say a lot about logic. Aristotle does. It is the primary method. It's a method. It's not a movement. It's a method in the universities for about 400 years. This will be the method and movement that Luther will take on straight, at, straight on, along with the sacramental system, okay? What did it try to do? It tried to resolve contradictions in our thinking about theological problems by using reason. That's what it did in a nutshell. We can figure this out using logic and reason. And in, in truth, it did great good. There's a lot of good things that come out of this but it also created a significant problem even for the medieval people, not just the reforming people, and that's important. It tended towards speculation and precision about articles we might say, that's really a matter of faith. You're never gonna be logically able to break down the Trinity. You're not gonna be able to put a mathematical formula on the incarnation. It's not gonna work. So you see my point, On the, now we got a debate that's unfolding. How much can faith and reason actually work together? And this is huge, and it almost rips the church apart. It almost creates one of the, the, the pre-Reformation split, right? It almost does, particularly with two groups. And they're monks, the Dominicans and the Franciscans. So picture your favorite football team. <laughs> you were either with the Dominicans or the Franciscans. And the University of Paris is where it's going to be, the, the fight's going to happen. All right? Place your bets, right? They're two new orders. They grew out of the uh, uh, 
the, they, they both came in around 1215. Uh, Dominic was a Spaniard, Francis was an Italian. Uh, they both were reforming movements. They, wanted, they were preaching movements, mendicant, poor, poverty movements. They believed, preach. And I like to say these are our first evangelicals. Uh, they were taking the word out of the institutions, so to speak. But in order to control them, the easiest way you can do that is say, well, just form a monastery, you know, and that's what they did. But these questions are really important. How is science a religious enterprise? How does science work? Moderns did not invent science. Science is there. How are we going to, and is natural science, can it be reconciled to Christianity? And so then they started pointing fingers at each other, saying, well, the Franciscans, they're too, um, the Dominicans, they're too intellectual. They want a closed system. They don't have a real meaningful relationship with God. The Dominicans would argue back, no, you're too, you spiritualize everything. You don't live in the real world. I mean, God created the world and it matters. Back and forth, back and forth. I'm making some light of it. It's actually quite serious because these this school of thought began to influence all the universities, which trained all the, the, the teachers, uh, the, the priests. And it really becomes a question of, are you a rationalist? Or are you a Christian? <laughs> right? And what is it? Can you be both? It should sound familiar. Because it's a modern problem that begins here as this argument begins to unfold. It took a giant of... Uh, of Western thought to come in and finally solve this as best he could. Uh, is the relationship between our faith and our reasonable mind or our nature and God's grace to us. And you've heard of Thomas Aquinas. He wrote two very important works in the Middle Ages. Thomas says, no, look, Dominicans, and he, he's a Dominican. And he says, no, 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 let, there's, there's a way forward Grace takes what we have by nature and perfects it. Our minds are fallen, but our minds are not destroyed. And same as our senses are fallen, but they're not destroyed. They work. They're sinful, but grace helps us grasp the truth. They cannot, they come from the same God, so they cannot be opposed to one another. And you may say, well, duh, okay. Well, it was a big deal. <laughs> I mean, for, for somebody to finally articulate this, in a way that made sense in this world, it was a big deal that still affects us. But he left us with a problem. <laughs> what about our wills? What about the will? If that's how the mind works, what about our will? And here's an important point that leads us into our next class together. Aquinas says, you know what? It's through this that, Christ, that God infuses us with grace to build up our salvation and make us capable of receiving it. What Thomas says, for all of his brilliance, I, 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 he is a fantastic and important theologian. He does a great job reconciling these things but that old Pauline Augustinian question of the will is left hanging there. How problematic is the will or the heart when it comes to its natural capacity and what is needed by God's grace? And Aquinas 
takes this sacramental system and along with other theologians, he gives it a kind of logic, a perfect logic that covers you from cradle to grave. And right in the middle of it is this idea of penance or contrition or repentance. Because what happens if we continue to sin? How do we get, how do we get infused again with grace? How does it come back to us? And it's this that will set off the Reformation controversy uh, for next week. I'll close. Well, then there's this, and I'm going to skip it. <laughs> Everybody take that in? Got it? All right, good. Let's move on. I mean, so basically now, let's sum this up. So what is this Pope thing again? If there are three of them and you can't decide? Okay. Um, how, why does any of this matter for today? Why does this matter for today? The question of justification and how God communicates grace is essential to what you believe in the church, where you go to church, what you actually physically do when you go in and sit down and how you're receiving that message is still with us. The extent and limits of ecclesiastical authority still matter. What if the people in charge are wrong? What are the limits of the institution? But again, what deference should we owe the institution? What if they're right and we're wrong? The Middle Ages really brings this home to us. Bishops, people in authority, deserve that office, but they also deserve the scrutiny that should come with it as to whether or not they're teaching the truth. And finally, the relationship between faith and reason. Need I say more? We live in a scientific, materialistic, capitalistic age, the most rational people that have ever lived on earth. We even live in a post-rational age, according to some. This is at the heart of, of course, what I do as a professor. Um, it's at the heart of our education system. Uh, it's at the heart of what many churches believe. You have to suspend your rational nature in order to be a Christian? Is it truly irrational? Or is there a relationship between nature and grace, between faith and reason, that Protestantism especially must continue to wrestle with in the modern world? The Middle Ages. <laughs> um, any thoughts or, or questions? It's a lot, and I apologize for that, but there was no way I could do it without pain. So <laughs> I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm not. Any any thoughts or questions about this? Sir? Well, generally, yes, it's always been an issue there. <laughs> um, if I had to put another point up there, I would say Germany has always been an issue. <laughs> yeah. Even today, yes. the Roman German church yes. is creating problems for the Roman Catholic Church. Even today, yeah. correct. The, the way Germany has developed in its understanding of itself, and remember, it's not a unified nation until 1870. Uh, has been uh, a very interesting qu question for the modern world in Euro Europe, the Western world. Mm. It's always kind of as an asterisk beside it. <laughs> in what way? In that it, it had its own sort of 
cultural formation independent of the Anglosphere. Uh, France, Spain, and England developed under monarchies very early and developed cultural unity very early. Uh, Germany did not. Germany was fragmented, had, um, um, and had a, a, a sort of uh, volatile sense of independence through the Holy Roman Empire as heirs to a particular tradition, spiritual tradition. Please, yeah. So you were saying that in Germany, that means that because the government is historically been more decentralized. You know how I often. It translated in terms of the church as well. Yes. Not being correct in terms of the different theological expressions. Perfect. That's exactly what I would say. I often try to tell students if you, there's a strange and imperfect parallel between the American South and Germany in its history. And what I mean by that is similar, there's a sense of, we're, yes, we're there, but we're not like you in our, in, in our inheritance. Or we have to deal with certain scars from our inheritance and guilt. And, and so there's this, this sense of belonging, but not belonging, but having its own tradition. It's, a, it's very imperfect, whoever's listening. <laughs> it's very imperfect, but I think it helps get us there. Yes, sir. I'm kind of in awe that you were able to boil this down so much, but um, the first two established churches ended up getting cut off by the Muslim expansion in Ethiopia and Armenia. Correct. And both of those have real problems with the Trinity, and they yep. that problem was blamed for the separation of most of Christendom. In the East and the West. Yep. Yeah, yep. from Rome. Yep. Um, Correct. That could the Great 1054. Yeah. <coughs> So yes, I left out the Great Schism. Yes, thank you for pointing that out of 1054. Um, to, the, to the point, uh, in case the Eastern and Western Church in 1054 cut off uh, fellowship with one another on, on this very point of the question, well, iconography was one of the big issues, how images could be used, but the notions of the Trinity and how the Trinity were understood. The Eastern, and, the Eastern churches uh, refused at that point to stand in fellowship with Rome. It's a pretty big deal, so thank you for pointing it out. <laughs> a lot of other stuff happened. I mean, four crusades, five crusades, if you're counting. Um, plague, we can talk about that. Um. Actually, as a follow-up, what I was really focusing on was uh, Sola Scriptura yeah. and Vulgate, um, which was specific to those two. Of the Eastern churches. Yeah. Eastern churches. Yeah. Yes, you're correct. Uh, I, I mean, I, to go into, yeah, yeah, there, there is, but, and but I, I don't think they want to do that, but I just have a hunch. But I'm happy to, yeah, but yeah. I, that was one reason the Protestants split. It's like, how come you won't let us publish it in our own language? And like you did before, that yeah, was yeah, yeah, why? yeah, absolutely. Peace, <laughs> <laughs> Reformation next week. So. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.